Welcome to the Exposure Ninja Digital Marketing Podcast. This show is all about helping you to generate more leads and sales through your digital marketing. Now today we're gonna try a different format. This is a new format, a sort of pilot if you like, that we recorded to test more of a conversational style podcast between myself, Tim and Jess, who's from our marketing team. So we ran it as a pilot. We thought, ah, do you know what? We quite like this. So we thought we'd publish it, but I'm really keen to get your feedback on it. Do you like it? Do you not like it? Let me know, tim at exposureninja.com. You can drop me an email, tim at exposureninja.com. Let me know what you think. If people like it, great, we'll do more of it. If people don't like it, no worries. We're here for getting the feedback. If we do go forward with this new format, then we'd be continuing to run the old format podcast as well. So you'd have two episodes per week. One will be this new conversation style and one will be the regular format where it's just me and I'm just talking you through a certain topic in digital marketing. Anyway, on with the show. Welcome to the Exposure Ninja Digital Marketing Podcast. My name's Tim, CEO of Exposure Ninja. And my name is Jess, Digital Marketing Beast at Exposure Ninja. <laughs> Love it. So today we're gonna to be talking about all sorts of stuff. We're gonna go through some digital marketing news. We've got some massive news with big players in the world of digital marketing. We're gonna talk about this week's video that we've been recording as well. Some sort of off the script stuff that we've learned. And Jess is going to take us through her brand of the week. We're going to talk about one of our favorite digital marketing campaigns that we've run at Exposure Ninja. And then we're going to round up with the marketing fail of the week. So Jess, what's the big news? What has been catching your eye this week in the world of digital? Well, the big news that we cannot avoid is Elon Musk buying Twitter. It's finally gone through. I don't think anybody really thought it was going to happen, but it has finally happened and chaos is ensuing for <laughs> sure it is non-stop um and alongside that google earnings has gone up but is lower than what they forecast and youtube growth has actually shrunk which is quite a surprise so that's our two two big players this week two huge platforms um so yeah very very interesting like you say, I mean, Elon hasn't disappointed, has he, with the Twitter purchase, like causing havoc, walks in with a kitchen sink, let that sink in, memes. He's like, a, he's a sort of like a living meme, isn't he? Respect to someone of his age and generation who can still be so trending and so hip, despite running companies like this is a pretty unique character. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very interesting to hear you say that because I think on my side of the coin, we all kind of look at him and go, hmm, old man, sure. <laughs> you know, he's he's a bit more hip than other business owners in the space, but I would say there's a lot of us sort of rolling our eyes and going, okay, Elon, sure, have your fun. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's like I said, going to be very interesting to see what happens and how Twitter evolves over the next, I think we're going to be seeing weekly changes at this yeah. rate we really are really really are well apparently he's live firing people right now so um yeah it's kind of kicking off I, th I guess for me one of the most interesting things is that twitter has always underperformed as an ad platform it almost always seemed like it had so much potential for advertisers because you've got people who are following certain people uh, which is sort of an instagram kind of social graph type thing but then you've also got people who are interested in certain topics um, and, you know, follow particular hashtags. So as an advertiser, I'm thinking, well, I'd love to be able to target 
people really narrowly or just give my budget to Twitter and Twitter can use all of that data to find the best audience for me. But yet the Twitter advertising product has never really taken off. So I think looking at Elon, who's previously said stuff like, I hate advertising, he does. I mean, they do advertise. Tesla advertises. The solar panel company advertising all that stuff but it'll be really interesting to see whether he tries to wean twitter off its ad supported model if he has any other ideas this blue check mark thing for eight dollars seems to be kicking right off it certainly is yeah there's there's such a massive conversation about that and i think it's important for brands if that happens you know anybody can pay for a blue check mark and impersonate your brand and say absolutely whatever they want you know you have a disgruntled customer all of a sudden they're paying for a blue check mark pretending to be you could cause absolute havoc. So yeah, I am intrigued to see how he will end up making money from this. As we can see, people aren't too happy about the blue check mark situation. Um, there was conversations about Twitter blue kind of being a premium service. There's been super follows that have been around for a while, but they just haven't taken off. And like you said, the Twitter advertising platform is, yeah, not ideal. Their PPC is... Mm. No, yeah. I, I mean, I guess that shows in the numbers, right? Twitter's ad revenue, $4.5 billion, which is about equivalent to TikTok. But, you know, TikTok is going up and up and up. I think they're expected to double in the next year or two. Whereas Twitter, I don't think anyone is expecting it. For me, Twitter's ad product is a little bit like um, Reddit's ad product in that it has massive potential. You've got access to these super niches of people, which on the surface should be amazing but yet because it hasn't made it easy for our advertisers to use that it's always sort of underperformed you know compare this to google's ad revenue which is over 200 billion dollars like twitter is 150th of that it's just it's just not a player so i'm secretly hoping that elon does a bit of an elon where he had so much hype and energy around it but then puts like the adults in charge and someone comes in and fixes up the ad product and turns it into a really legit ad channel because I think digital can only get better for advertisers if we've got more options for ad platforms. And, you know, Twitter has, it's survived and it's thrived while so many other, you know, even against Facebook, there's nothing that does what Twitter does. If you want to find out up to date right now stuff, Twitter is the place to go, isn't it? So for me, there's like a competitive moat there. I just hope that he doesn't screw up. Advertisers are apparently already starting to leave and some people are pulling their budgets. So yeah, I saw that 1 million users have left already. Um, But there are a lot of people, you know, a lot of people saying we've always been on Twitter. We don't want to leave. What's the point? Um, And I do sometimes wonder with Elon if this whole thing is just some kind of marketing campaign in its own way. Everyone is talking about Twitter. Everyone wants to know what is next for Twitter. And I think, you know, there is a a glimmer of hope that he somehow decides to, um, to, yeah, like you said, hand it over to the adults and do something really smart with it. So we can, we can only hope it is a case of watching and seeing what's going to happen, but I am definitely watching it very closely. I'm enjoying the chaos. (laughs) To be fair, he's got a track record, hasn't he? So, you know. Um, you mentioned also Google earnings. That's a really interesting one. So revenue was up 6%, but that was lower than their massive 2021 growth. For me, this is like, it's, it's symptomatic of all tech stocks at the moment. If anything is coming out under expectations, they're being absolutely hammered. Um, YouTube growth, like you said, it's a bit of a surprise, the fact that ad, ad revenue growth through YouTube has um, changed a bit. Your very short form video, you're very TikTok native. 
Um, what's your take on YouTube Shorts and how you could see it sort of competing against TikTok? Do you think they've got a chance there? Do you know, I think they do because I have loads of friends who refuse to go on TikTok, but YouTube Shorts, you know, it's already where they are. They're already on there. They already feel good about that platform. They see it as a more grown-up platform. So they want to see the shorts on there. They want to get their short form content there rather than on TikTok where all the kids are. Um, So I think YouTube does have a good shot in that space. Like I know when I was creating shorts in like my personal time, they were really blowing up. And I think YouTube were really, really pushing shorts and they want them to do well. I mean, I'm getting adverts on YouTube for YouTube shorts Um, and they're good adverts. Like I think they're appealing. I think they're doing well. Um, And I, yeah, I genuinely think that YouTube could not beat TikTok, but I think that short form video does have its place on YouTube compared to potentially somewhere like Instagram, where people are sort of like, oh, why are they pushing video? Why are they pushing reels? We want our photo platform back. Shorts fit so nicely and so natively onto YouTube. And of course, one more thing to add about that is that any brands or anyone who wants to get into the YouTube space, shorts are a bit less commitment than making a full YouTube video, as you know, Tim are king of YouTube, but, um, you know, they can be a lot more casual. You can connect with people on a much more personal level. Um, It's just a case of how you use it. How are you bringing that hook in? How are you getting enough information across in a short amount of time? So yeah, I'm very intrigued to see what the future has for shorts, but I think it's going in a really positive direction. From a, I guess from a financial perspective, I'm, I'm inclined to agree. I mean, I think one of the things that YouTube has done so well is build i mean obviously youtube is google so there's a fantastic ad product on the back end of it and for a marketer it's really easy to advertise on youtube because it's from through google which you're already using anyway so it's very seamless whereas going into tiktok to advertise a whole new platform but i think the genius thing for you or the thing that's in favor of youtube um in this sort of youtube tiktok battle is that by by sharing ad revenue with creators on the main YouTube, they've built an incredible creator community. There's a whole, you know, whole world of people who earn their entire living on YouTube. And on TikTok, if you want to earn money, I think there are some, you know, there is some ad rev share stuff, but mainly it's through brands and collabs and stuff like this, whereas there is a legitimate ad supported business model for creators on YouTube. And if they kind of move that over to shorts as well, which they're planning to do in 2023 with sharing ad revenue um, with shorts creators, then I think that gets really exciting. You've got creators who are like, well, do I create on TikTok? Do I create on YouTube? I could maybe make the same video, but I could get money for it, more money for it on YouTube because they're better at monetizing, better at advertising. Then that starts to maybe turn me towards towards that platform and make that my priority. And then I'm sort of reposting on TikTok rather than treating TikTok as my home channel, if you like. Absolutely, um, absolutely. I have seen creators say, you know, they'll compare how many views they've had on a video on YouTube, how many views they've had on TikTok, compare the revenue, and it just does not compare. They're getting pennies on TikTok for what they're getting on YouTube. And I think people are, once that monetization runs out, rolls out on shorts, that people are going to migrate over. Yeah. But we'll hope their fans follow because the fan kind of space on TikTok is very, very different to anywhere else on the internet. But that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> <laughs> 
So um, let's talk about this week's video. So uh, the week, the video that's just gone live on our YouTube channel is all about landing pages. So I think we posted a video or we've posted loads of videos about landing pages because they're such an important part of digital marketing. Um, and we wanted to do sort of a, a modern, more up-to-date one. I think the last one was a, a couple of years old. And one of our most popular videos, because landing pages are such a difficult but high leverage thing to do. Um, I found it really interesting recording this because looking at so many of the highest performing landing pages that we've built and that are online, a lot of our advice has shifted from being like, oh, you should probably use this type of layout to being you should be using these principles and then the layout is a little bit more up for grabs. So it feels like layout on landing pages has changed quite a lot. Of course, there's still some like inviolate rules. You want CTAs nice and prominent, but whereas previously when we were focusing on, you know, landing pages being mostly desktop, we would have said CTA always on the right-hand side, headline always on the left-hand side. Now it's like mixed device sizes and, and it seems like the rules aren't so much the rules about layout anymore, but you know, some some key principles are still always going to be in place. You need social proof. You need clear calls to action. You need an attractive lure and that type of stuff. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if you've seen the video. Is there anything in there that surprised you or any questions that you think people might have about it? Of course I've seen the video, Tim. <laughs> so, yeah, I thought, like you said, it was really interesting to see the shift between saying you should have this layout, you should do this and you'll be golden to sort of moving towards, okay, but what do your customers want? How are they using your website? You know, how much do they trust you? Do you have good reviews? But also are you saying things like how much experience you have? You know, all these things that are, that can vary from website to website in terms of layout, but are so, so important. That's really what consumers care about, you know, in this day and age. And I did have a few questions that kind of popped up when I was watching the video. The first one being like, what's the biggest landing page sin you see? Because we kind of touched on a few in the video where you were showing some examples and, you know, we were kind of saying this is okay, but are you still seeing a consistent sin across a load of landing pages? Yeah, I think it kind of relates to what you said um, at the start, like in when we start, first started building landing pages in 2013, 2014, you could just knock up any sort of landing page. And as long as there was a call to action, you were going to get a conversion rate. Whereas now the barrier is so much higher than that. You've got to demonstrate credibility and not just demonstrate one form of credibility. We see the top performing landing pages demonstrating multiple forms of credibility using the, um, there's an example with Box, the boiler company, you know, they've got like as seen on TV, they've got all the review stars, they've got testimonials, they've got phone numbers, you know, so that you know, you can talk to a real person. And it's, it's, so, I think the biggest sin is not keeping up with the pace of change and how people's expectations are so much higher. Now, if I'm looking to get a boiler installed, whereas before I might have trusted a site that maybe I could see someone's face. Now, all the sites I'm looking at, I've got loads of review stars. I've got testimonials feeding through from third-party sites. They've got, you know, it's so, the, the, the table stakes, if you like, are so much higher. And I think it's, it's dangerous to not evolve with that and not keep pushing and not keep optimizing. 100%. I think like people forget when we're shopping for anything, especially when it's expensive, you have like 20 tabs open. Some of us are making notes, we're making a spreadsheet. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not just a case of like looking and seeing, oh yeah, they've got five stars. Um, and yeah. I think, yeah, people do forget that. I was going to ask a question about why is there so many outdated landing pages out there, but I think we pretty much answered that. I think it's just to do with it worked for a while. Now it doesn't, but they're just kind of like, it'll work again eventually. 
Yeah, I mean, so it's like Salesforce is is really interesting for me because their landing pages look super, super old school. And, you know, they look like they haven't changed since not even like 2013, 2014. These things look like they could have been produced in the 2010s. And I can't figure it out for the life of me, whether it's like a, whether they've got some platform issue, like typically when we work with a client and they can't change the look of their landing page, it's some platform that they can't, you know, they can't get over it. They can't um, get around it. They can't make something that looks nice, even if they wanted to. But Salesforce obviously have the resources to be able to do that. So I can't figure that out. But, you know, with Salesforce being the company that it is and having the growth that it is, and you can see the marketing messages on those pages are super dialed in. They do a fantastic job of basically identifying their different customer cohorts and then using the language in the calls to action, which is most going to resonate with that person. So if they're advertising something for an entrepreneur, then they'll talk about growth and increasing sales. And if they're advertising something for a service team, they'll talk about customer satisfaction, customer retention, because they know that that's what those you know, those different types of um, customer care about. So it looks like they're doing some great stuff, but then they've got these super old school looking landing pages. I I, I can't figure it out, but they seem to be the only company that I'm like, I, 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 I don't know why these pages don't look better. They look like they were something that's like from a time capsule, like they didn't realize that they were still running them, but they're running them for their branded terms. So it's obviously not that. Yeah, there's just must be something going on that we just can't see. They're playing 4D chess, you know, they just they they obviously know something that we don't. And unfortunately, yeah, maybe one day we'll find out. I have to get somebody from Salesforce on the podcast and absolutely grill them. Absolutely. That would be, that it's like vintage funny. marketing. They just yeah. maybe they're taking us back to a simpler, happier time. <laughs> maybe so, maybe so. They're obviously doing something right. Um, yeah, and the other question that kind of popped up for me is what part of landing pages do you see people getting hung up on when you just don't think they should be? Like I know one website sin we see a lot is people getting hung up on design and it's like, yeah, you might win a design award, but are you winning business? Perhaps not. So are you kind of seeing the same on a smaller scale of landing pages? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is the, always the argument. You know, we'll get a new client who comes in and they want to talk about branding, but the thing that they want to talk about is is the logo and the logo is like the least important part. Now for the business owner, your business doesn't feel real until you've got a logo and you want your logo to be great and you want it to be so cool that people have it tattooed on them. They're not going to do that and they're definitely not going to make a purchase decision based on your logo. So like as long as you've got I, th- I think of design as it's almost it's table stakes in a way that you need to have design which builds credibility. So you need to look legit. You need to look high quality. People making those judgments based on design, but they're not making a judgment purely based on design. Design is just one thing, and then you need to get it right, and then just move on. And then it's it's like the the bit that nobody spends the time on is what are we actually offering in this on this landing page? What's the call to action? What's the offer in that thing which is making someone go? wow, this looks absolutely killer. You know, our free website and marketing review, we've been rinsing this thing for years because it works because people really want to get a free analysis of their website and their digital marketing. They can't believe it's free. So that means that our landing page job is much easier because we've got something that people really want. Whereas if you've, you know, if you've got something completely generic and it's just free consultation, there's no description of that. There's no indication of what people are going to get. Well, then you have to work so much harder to get that customer. And, you know, no amount of design is going to sell something that people don't want. So, yeah, that'd be it. It's, It's not focusing on the offer in the call to action on the landing page and getting caught up in the 
the design, the frilly stuff that people just go, yeah, cool. And then they've moved on, but you've not moved on. You're still on design revision 295 and the landing page hasn't gone live. <laughs> yeah, completely, completely. So it looks like we've got a new video coming up that I'm very excited about. Did you want to talk a bit about that, Tim? Or are we not talking about that in today's? Yes, we can talk quickly about this. Um, it's HelloFresh. So we don't, we can, we can talk about it once we've gone live, but for me, HelloFresh is a really interesting case study. They've grown so quickly and they've grown in so many countries around the world, particularly they got more growth in the US than they did in the UK. And they did this through influencer marketing. But for me, one of the most important lessons from HelloFresh is how they segment their customers. And I think loads of businesses can learn from this. So they identified that they don't just have one target audience. They've basically got three or they've got three reasons why people would want to buy from them. And then what they've done, which I think is really smart, is they've created content for each of these different customer segments. And obviously, we don't know what they're doing with advertising and stuff on the back end. But if I just give you an example, so one of the reasons that people might buy HelloFresh, according to HelloFresh, is that they are sick of cooking the same, you know, pasta and tomato sauce six nights a week. Um, so they want to try new recipes. So HelloFresh has done all this research and they've produced this huge amount of recipe content on the site. So if people are searching for different types of recipe, they find HelloFresh. Now, obviously, we don't know what they're doing on the back end of this, but if it was us, then what we would then be doing is pixeling people who landed on those recipe searches and advertising, remarketing, retargeting to them saying, hey, join HelloFresh. There's loads of recipes, right? And focusing on the thing that we know they care about. So we're, we're talking about a pain point that we know they're interested in and we can use that to position the business. Another customer segment might be focused on the fact that they can't get to a grocery store. So you want to have a completely different conversation with that person because talking about recipes might not resonate with them. So you get them onto the page because they've searched for like grocery delivery or something. Then you pixel them, you retarget them, you remarket them, you run email sequences to them talking about the convenience of having all your groceries and your food delivered. So I, I, I really like that. And I think that came through in what they're doing. They're not doing everything right. Their PPC is an absolute dumpster fire. But at least that part of it, I was like, yeah, this, this is super cool. And the way they explain it is, is really nice as well. Yeah, yeah. I had to mention it just because I saw you say about the PPC. I'm so excited to see the video and see what you say about that because there was a time I couldn't move without seeing a HelloFresh advert on YouTube. Sometimes I get two in one video. There's a certain range of brands that have really good YouTube adverts that you see so much that they've become insufferable. Unfortunately, <laughs> HelloFresh was one of them. Um, I won't mention the other brands now, but it'd just be interesting to know, like, how much are they spending and why is this yeah. happening? Uh, yeah, I mean, when I started looking into HelloFresh, they were talking a lot about data and, and the importance of data. So I was expecting a really sort of, sometimes when businesses and marketing teams are really focused on data, you can get almost like a... Um, uh, almost like a, an inhumane approach. It's just numbers. It's just quants. And actually with HelloFresh, it's the complete opposite. They've got some really cool creative ideas, but it seems like the numbers side of things, like, like you say about um, YouTube sort of ads being just pummeling people. Some of the comments on their most produced, most popular, most viewed ads are like, stop showing me this. I've seen this so many times. So yeah. there's a question about like ad frequency and at what point they're getting saturation. And then in the UK, they're producing the same sort of content, but sometimes they're not even promoting it at all. They're just producing this stuff. They're spending all the time, energy and money getting it together. And then they're just not putting any ad budget behind it. And then the Google ad stuff is just 
unbelievable. This is like shoveling cash into wow. Google without. I, I can only imagine that they're not tracking. If they're tracking, then someone is looking on the wrong tab of the spreadsheet because oh dear. I, there's no way that there's ROI or there's no way that there's optimal ROI. But yeah, I'm really excited to get this video out because I think, um, yeah, I th- <laughs> we haven't done a good old teardown for a while and tearing down their PPC was was quite easy. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Like I said, very, very excited to see that one for sure. Jess, you're going to take us through our brand of the week. I, I am really indeed. Like I've never heard of them before. Have you not? How interesting. Nice. So yeah, when you asked me to look for my first brand of the week for this podcast, Estrid popped into my head immediately. And that's because I've been to like, I'm in, traveling a bit, seeing friends. And I've seen Estrid razors in three different houses and they're totally different people. Admittedly, two of them are my sisters, but one's at university, one's working. And then another friend had Estrid. And then I mentioned it to my sister and she was like, yeah, here's five other people I know that have Estrid. And I was like, this is so, so, so interesting to me. Um, And so I did a little bit of a look into them. So Estrid, for those who don't know, they sell razors. Um, They sell like a razor handle and then you get the refills on a subscription service, which we love. Um, And they sell a few other products like based around shaving, but the razors are their core offer. And, you know, they kind of have that environmental sway because they're saying you're only paying for the handle once it's made of metal and then you're paying you know you get replacement razors but probably less frequently than you would be with you know the average disposable razor but I think the reason why they've done so well is number one their social media which I know Tim you've had a look at and found it quite interesting and also their SEO now I don't think most of their SEO is like where they're getting most of their traffic from. I think it was social media, but I just had to talk about their SEO because they've seen a gap in this market of shaving products where people aren't talking about more taboo topics. Mm. And then they are covering all those topics in blog format, giving the advice that people can't get anywhere else, that people are typing into Google. And I just thought that was absolutely fantastic. They've also positioned themselves, you know, they're not all about shaving a bare leg. I would say like some <laughs> razor companies are, you know, they're very much like we're for anybody who shaves, no matter how much you shave, no matter what part of you shave, you know, they're so inclusive, like all their marketing's incredibly inclusive, their website, like, yeah, I could talk about them for hours, <laughs> absolutely for hours. I, I think you're right. When I, when I started looking at this, I was like, you, you put it in the sheet and I was like, Esther, I've never heard of this. That's so interesting. And obviously, I'm just not their target audience. So, so it's just completely skipped my radar. And it's sort of one of those brands that sort of bubbles under the surface, doesn't it? And then you realize that actually it's not ubiquitous, but it's way more popular than you would think looking completely. from the outside. So when you say covering taboo topics, they're basically, it looks like they've made these guides on how to shave different body parts, right? And by different body parts, we mean the body parts that like a Gillette, they're never going to publish content on how to shave those body parts. So it's almost like they've, they've taken, they've said, right, well, you know, these big corporations, like they're not, they're not going to touch that stuff, but we can see that their search volumes, we're just going to dominate for it. And it looks like they have. Yeah. Completely, completely. Like when I was going through the 
on SEMrush going through their search terms. I was like, can I say these on the podcast? Probably <laughs> yeah. not. But like I was, it just was like absolutely mind blowing because I thought, yeah, people are searching for this and nobody else is covering it. And Estrid have gone, how can we get compete with all these huge well-known brands? Oh yeah, we'll go where no one else is. And I think there's so many other brands that absolutely should and could be doing that. Finding these content gaps Mm-hmm. that people are searching for and practically building a brand around that it's just yeah amazing absolutely amazing so I, th- I think another reason that this this works well for them is because like you said this isn't just about shaving a bare leg like their their advertising isn't like some supermodel in a you know in a greek villa sort of with the sun shaving a body part that's already, this is like normal people, right? The, the, the content on social in particular and on their website is like, these are normal people that you would see on the street shaving an armpit that might have loads of hair, which, you know, for some people is very surprising to see in this type of advertising because we are used to seeing perfectly shaved people shaving. Yeah, no, it's so, so true. Like, and even the models on their website, you know, they're almost advertising, like, are you a female presenting person that doesn't want to shave your armpits, but does want to shave your legs? Cool. We cater to you. And it's just really like, yeah, even their webpage is almost taboo in the way that it positions itself. Um, But yeah, and they're doing the exact same across social media. So I actually was in the car with my sister last night and I said, I'm doing a podcast tomorrow and we're going to talk about Estrid. How did you find out about them? And she said it was because they did a tutorial on how to shave on TikTok. And she said that she still shaves in that way today. And she saw it, you know, like a year ago. And she still remembered exactly the video that she saw, introduced her to them and like converted her. And she was converted on the spot. And I was like, that is awesome. And I think you sort of echoed a bit of that sort of when you went in the comments and people were talking about shaving, talking about the topics they wouldn't normally talk about. And they found a safe space on Estrid's social media? Yeah, I mean, my experience, uh, so I had to dig into their TikTok. It was super interesting. Firstly, it looks like they're taking a, I, I don't know if you've got more insight into this, but from, from the outside, it looks like they've got, they're inviting, um, they're inviting people in to talk about their, sorry, they're inviting people to to post on their TikTok channel. I mean, I think one of the, the things that, the reasons that brands struggle with TikTok is because they don't necessarily have a good face for the business. So, they don't know what to post, right? They end up posting like boring stuff, like here's people in our office or hey, isn't it wacky? Whereas what <laughs> Estrid has done is sort of invited typical Estrid customers, but they have some influence to just basically take over their TikTok. So if you look through their their feed, you can see that you've got like sections of people who've been posting um, loads and loads of content, which is amazing. But then if you look into the comments, it's people saying, you know, oh, I found that the best time to shave is, you know, when the red bumps have gone down or, oh, this is just so annoying or like, oh, it itches so much. And they're, they're basically complaining about shaving. And I think a lot of brands would just shut that down. They delete those comments because we're selling a shaving product. These people are complaining about shaving. But Estrid, it's almost like they're facilitating those conversations by having people complaining about the itching in their TikToks. And then they get people on the comments being like, oh my gosh, you're like, you're looking at my life. And by doing that, they're becoming so relatable that there's just massive resonance with the audience. But it's it's an approach that Gillette would never take. So it's like the, you know, the little Robin Hood, like sneaking under the radar and grabbing the market share. And it's super exciting. This is what social is all about. Yeah, yeah. They're really building that 
like more of a personal bond with their audience. And it's almost like this is your little friend. Like, you know that they have your best interests at heart. They know you have these issues. They know that sometimes can't be fixed with, you know, a 17 blade razor being advertised by potentially a competitor making these false promises. You know, you're laughing, but it's true. Like they'll say, you know, best shave you've ever had, no red bumps, none of this. And then it's the same as ever. And Estra just sort of embracing that and being like, look, we're doing our best. We're going to keep trying. But what you get from us is the best that's out there right now. And we'll try and make it better. And they're just, like I said, they're honest. They're not afraid to talk about taboo topics. You know, they're eco-friendly. They're touching on so many, you know, important things that are important to their target audience, which is kind of Gen Z, I would Mm. say, sort of younger millennials. So yeah, Mm. absolutely nailing it. I saw you said, you know, they're operating at a 34% negative gross margin right now. Yeah, this, I mean, this is my big concern, right? This is this is the D to C problem summed up. Is that it looks? I mean, customer acquisition cost is going to be their biggest problem because they're selling razors, and even when you get the full starter kit, it's it's pretty low cost, isn't it? So you're going to need to rely on keeping those customers for a long time. Great, they've got subscription that makes things easier, but you are going to rely on people staying a customer for I don't, I don't know what their break even point looks like. So I looked into company, it looks like they've got a parent company, which also owns its April, which looks like a vitamin brand, which I thought was smart because they could probably do a bit of cross selling between those two different audiences. And it looks like the parent company is running at a negative 34% gross margin. So it's going to be, and unless they just, you know, obviously they're going to just be investing in, in more and more and more just to try and build up customer base so that maybe they can sell it or they can work on profitability later on. But with the economic climate that we're going into, I'd love to see them getting towards break even. And the key to doing that is going to obviously be organic content because they don't have to put much budget behind it. So it makes this sort of TikTok and the SEO stuff even more important. If they can get those customers free or very cheaply, that's going to really help their numbers. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. I'm very intrigued to see how things go for Estrid in the future. I think they've got a bright, a bright future ahead of them. Agreed. Agreed. I think a lot of D2C brands are really struggling. They've, you know, they've, taken on a lot of investment when cash was cheap and investing it all in customer acquisition and hopefully that you know some point down the line will be bought out and then economic conditions are turning and that's not so easy and then they're finding it less easy to attribute their sales because of ios 14.5 and all the facebook stuff so it feels like a bit of a an inflection point for d2c and i think we'll see um we'll see like the, the the tide going out on some of this and the strong brands will undoubtedly survive and will thrive with lower competition. But I mean, uh, uh, yeah, this is going to be a tough couple of years. I think it's going to be a bit of a reckoning for the, the DTC brands that don't have their marketing in place and are overpaying for, for new customer acquisition for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I've got a campaign for you. I wanted to share with you. I've been very uh, excited. Please writing share. up some awards um, entries and, and this one, it's just, it's sick. It actually relates a little bit to the customer, segmenta- seg- customer segmentation that we were talking about earlier. Um, so this is a client of ours that we've been working with for, for quite a while now. And they sell, um, they sell like uh, a facilities management software, I think, or visitor management software, you'd call it. So, you know, when you've, when you're running a hospital or something and you want to work out who's coming in and who's going out and that type of stuff. Um, they sell software and a really difficult period for them in, in COVID obviously, because all the offices and everything shut. Um, 
But on the back of that, there has been this transition to like hybrid working and smart offices and stuff. And I am so proud of the work that we've done to help them sort of reposition, but also get them in front of people who are asking questions about this whole new world um, with content. And we've taken a similar sort of approach to what we're talking about with HelloFresh, where they segment the audience. So rather than segment by different sort of desire types, what we did with this client is look at their their sort of marketing funnel, their buyer journey. We broke this down into segments. So what are the people who are searching for you know, Vista management software, what are they looking for and how can we get in front of them? But then a step beyond that or a step above that, like what are people looking for who are looking for how to, you know, they've got a problem that they need to solve. They need to manage visitors, but they don't know that Vista management software exists. And then all the way up to like, what is hybrid working and what is a smart office and stuff like this. And then our content team basically did, um, customer persona design for each of these different groups, built a whole bunch of content targeting each one, got it all ranked, got a huge amount of traffic. We um, we more than tripled their ranking keywords in the UK, more than quadrupled in the US. And uh, we tripled our inbound lead target with them um, in six months, which is, is, is stunning. But it's just a you know, it's just breaking down this audience into different chunks, just like HelloFresh did in a slightly different way and then getting in front of each of those chunks with the stuff that's most interesting to them. And I feel like this is the, this is like the next level of, of, of SEO. I think rather than treating your target audience as one block, breaking it down and nailing each one. So yeah, I'm, I'm just super pumped for the team. They've done a fantastic job with this. Yeah, they really, really have. And I think clients like this is so, so exciting to be able to look at the funnel in this way and really step back and think, okay, do people know what this thing is and how can we make them know? And what are they searching for before they realize it's a thing? Like you said, you know, people might be searching for how to reduce congestion at hospital waiting times, you know, saying Mm. lots of words here and hopefully I'm making sense. But, you know, they're finding those people and then those people are going, we can make this so much easier. We're using paper and you'd be shocked how many companies that have been going for years and years, you'll go and have a look at their management system and it's all paper. Even after, you know, even after lockdowns and the pandemic, they're still using paper. They just don't know that there's an alternative. They really don't. And so, like you said, stepping back and looking at the big picture and looking at what these customers are looking for rather than just being like, hey, we have these customers who are like this and these customers who are like this, you're sort of working through that sales process in a much more like almost a grassroots level. And yeah, it's like you said, really exciting in the SEO world. I love whenever I hear about campaigns like this because they're just so, they're just so good, so clever. And I think it's, it's a, it's a really common mistake that people make, right? It's, um, you know, one of, one of our first ever clients, I, this, this thing stuck with me forever and I think about it at least once a week but one of our first ever clients they were like a corporate massage company I use this example loads but when I first met with them I said like what what, like what do you want to rank for what do you want to advertise for and they said on-site massage and I was like okay cool we had a quick look there's a bit of search volume great let's let's optimize for that and we did it and we ranked for it and we advertised for it and there's no business coming through and like what's going on because there's you know there's traffic here and anyway it turned out that on-site massage was a phrase that them and all their competitors and the industry used but it's not something that customers used because if you're a customer you don't on-site massage is like a technical term what you search for is like 
can a masseuse come to the office for my team? Or exactly. you don't know that that's even a thing. You might search for like stressed out team solutions. Or, you know, it's this, it's this whole cloud of long tail. They're helplessly lost. They're wandering in the wilderness phrases. On the sharp end, bottom of the funnel, it might be corporate massage. It might be office massage. But it's definitely not the technical term that your industry uses. And all of us do it because we've been in the industry, we've been in our industry for like two, five, 10, 15, 20, 150 million years. So we're just thinking, well, our competitors are just like us. What do they search for? Well, they obviously search for the technical thing that our company offers, but they're not. They're searching for like the dumbest, most reductive thing in Google that you'd never think to target because it's embarrassing. But you know, that's, that's what they are. You got to meet them where they are. You really, really have to. And it's, yeah, it's about getting inside their head and understanding that your customers don't always know. They just don't, you know, not to say maybe they're a little bit stupid. They're not stupid. They just don't know the words that you're using and you're alienating them because of this. We always, you always use an example of some technical hospital CT scan equipment that you've used in a few videos previously, you know, and there's one website that's just so complicated. And then the next one is just like, makes it easier it's portable you know it's so yeah. straightforward and it's like okay that's what people are looking for you have to remember the person ordering the ct scanner is not the surgeon or the doctor it's the person sat behind the desk who you know doesn't have all that experience and you need to be thinking about okay what is important to them what are they looking for what list have they been given in a hurry of things that they <laughs> need to know you know the 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 person in charge of purchasing has just gone yeah we just need one that's portable and it's faster and it's lightweight and they're like looking at this sheet of keywords that just makes absolutely no sense so really think about you know talk to your customers please talk to your target audience talk to your sales team find out the conversations they're having and then use that it's such an incredible asset that people just aren't using they're just not doing it yeah you're so right the customers aren't stupid they're just average right you're you're the freak you're the one who's and you mentioned talking to the sales team i think often service teams and product teams can be a bit frustrated with the sales team because the sales team seem a bit basic but the sales team actually are the ones that are most calibrated to the audience so yeah they might seem a bit basic to you but they're right not you or at least you know obviously you need your expertise to deliver your products or service but when it comes to talking to customers calibrate to your sales team don't calibrate to the you know the 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 neck beard in the back who's who's programming the thing um that's a terrible generalization um let's move on sharply marketing fail of the week jess what have you got for us Um, my marketing fail of the week is making generalizations about programmers in the back (laughs) and calling them no so my marketing fail of the week is kind of an interesting one kind of a bit layered kind of needs some discussion but it was um adidas's slow response to kanye west behavior i'd sort of seen a few people in my circles kind of say why haven't they come out faster why haven't they spoken about this or even why was this the last straw and Mm. it's one of these things where it's it's borderline a fail because it's like okay what would have happened the other way there's really is arguments for both sides of this coin and obviously we only see the complaints for the decision they decided to make which was to hold off. We don't get to see the complaints for if they would have immediately erased him from their history. So it's 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 an interesting one. It's a layered marketing fail. It is, isn't it? And uh, well, you know, there was some conversation that Adidas uh, staff were complaining since I think 2018 or 2019 when 
Kanye we- or Ye we- wore this uh, Make America Great Again hat. And at that point, they were like, no, this is, you know, we need to distance ourselves from that person. It's really difficult because on the one hand, you don't want to you don't want to cut off people who are just have different beliefs than you. But then on the other hand, you need to cut off people. You know, there's a line, right? You can't just say, you know, Hitler, well, he, he just, you know, just got different beliefs, just a different a different belief set. No, there, there is obviously a clear line. So it must be incredibly difficult for a brand like Adidas to, to make that decision. But then at the same point, like as soon as he's, as soon as there's hate speech, right? That, that you know, that's a hard no for almost anyone, isn't it? Um, yes. It, yeah, it's, it it's so... So, so interesting. And I noticed people saying, you know, did they have, why didn't they have something in place sort of knowing this person and knowing um, his sort of history, but maybe this was the plan all along. This was the thing that they had in place. And I think people, um, you know, people who don't work in business or work in businesses don't understand sometimes the layers you have to go through to make any decision, especially a company as big as Adidas. And yeah, you said that like more than 40% of their profit comes from Yeezy, which obviously is is Yeezy's brand, which mm. is, you know, as awful as it is to say, there will be people, higher ups, decision makers who are going, is it really that bad though? Can't we just yeah. pretend it didn't happen? And so, you know, there's going to be blocks all along the way. It's not just as simple as the person running the Twitter account to be able to go, don't like this person, he's out. Like it's layered and there's it's so tangled up. It's not just as simple. We wish it was that simple. And I'm sure there's plenty of people at the company that wish it was that simple. But unfortunately, it just isn't. So you make a very good point there about the layers and, and should they have had a plan in place? And I was really interested when this all kicked off. Like, how do they come to a decision like this? Like, what's actually the chain of command? So I think it was Bloomberg or someone reported that apparently it was a very quick decision between the Adidas execs. They had a two minute call and decided quite quickly. But before they got to that place, they needed to run it past, I think, two different legal firms. Now, if you've ever tried to run anything through legal, this is like, you know, it's the the tough mudder bit at the end where you've got to crawl under the net with the mud and like the jet washes all firing on you. It's very difficult to make rapid progress. So I'm, a, I'm inclined to go with your suggestion is that this is a very volatile person. What are our what are our boundaries? What are our hard lines? Let's get all of the pre-approval from legal and all of that stuff sorted so that if any of this is triggered, it's a very quick decision. Like maybe there should just be policies in place that, you know, anyone that we're working with, these are the boundaries and, and they don't cross it, which then enables, you know, that two minute decision happens as soon as those comments are made rather than a week or two weeks later, by which point, you know, the 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 crowds are at the gates chanting for blood. And, and then it looks like it's a slow response. Well, from the exec's perspective, they're like, well, it's a two-minute conversation. We made a very quick decision. But it's because they hadn't done all that other stuff and they hadn't got it ready that it ended up looking like such a slow decision. Completely, completely. It's always way more complex than people on the outside of business think. I'm not saying that, you know, they they made the absolute right decision with how they sort of postponed it a little bit, but there's always so much at play that you just can't, you can't predict for it. And I really think that they were in a situation where they thought he won't say anything worse. And then he did. <laughs> um, and so they were just kind of like, Oh, well, we're going to have to put something in place. So it would be interesting to see who they work with in the future. Mm. And if we do see people being dropped by brands faster than they have been previously, it, it was going to be, yeah, very interesting to see because this is influence marketing on an infinitely massive scale. 
you know and um yeah that's a that's an area of marketing that's always changing and evolving so it'd be interesting to see the repercussions from this just across that industry as a whole it will and i think the coverage of you know that the fact that ye and the yeezy brand was 40 percent of adidas's profit I mean, that's obviously all come out because of this and, you know, people are talking about this more. But, I mean, what a stunning uh, vote for the power of influencer marketing and for the right, Completely. you know, the right collaboration. So I think it produced like 4 to 8% of their revenue, but 40% of their profit because they can sell the same shoes as Yeezys for $350 or £350 instead of £60. And it's just that that perception, that brand, which is great when it's working well. And then as soon as something like this happens, obviously the value of that brand, it's all based in perception. The value of that brand, all of that perception is like, it just goes to zero, doesn't it? It's like when there's a run on Bitcoin or something that's so much about perception and speculation, Completely. the bottom just comes out of it and it's just gone. There's just nothing left. So yeah, um, yeah sort of vote prone for these types of collabs, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Great. Well, thanks, Jess. This has been a lot of fun. It has. I've enjoyed it. See you all next week. See you next week.